Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Very good. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Wes, who's here, who just stood up, very, very good timing, sir, <laughs> suggested in it, yeah, hey, meet Wes, <laughs> uh, suggested, uh, we had a new member interest class, and he suggested or reminded us that he really enjoyed the time where we uh, got a chance to reflect during the service. So Alex and I took that back and we said, Wes is right. We like Wes. We do take suggestions for the liturgy. And thought, you know, as we, as we spend time going to the Lord in prayer, it would be good to take pauses in the midst of that just to allow our minds to be settled, to reflect, to hear from God, to say things to Him as you feel led. But I want to invite you not just to be passive as I pray this morning, but to be active in it as well or to be still before God. And so at three points during my prayer this morning, I'll pause and just give you space to do that. We've been doing, uh, we've been following the Book of Common Prayer through this season of Epiphany, the season that celebrates and marks God's revelation of himself to the Gentiles. And we're in our sixth week of that. We're just getting ready for Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, and of course, Ash Wednesday, as we enter into the Lent season. And so as we close out Epiphany this week, we wanted to go to one of the readings that, that, uh, that was scheduled there. It's out of 2 Corinthians 4. And Alex and I were discussing this this morning, and he pointed out to me something that I hadn't realized, so thank you, sir. I restructured my prayer around it. He noticed that Paul addresses three main attributes here, light, which was paramount to the Hebrews, knowledge, which was paramount to the Greeks, and glory, which was paramount to the Romans. And he addresses each one of them in this text. And so we'll pray with those things in mind this morning. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is Paul writing. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Pray with me. Lord, Paul reminds us that you called light to shine into darkness. We're reminded of the darkness of the world. We're reminded of what is broken, brokenness that we experience in our own personal lives, Lord, the brokenness that we witness in the city, brokenness that we see in the lives of those who are close to us, Lord, this morning we pray for the hurting and those expecting, or who are experiencing brokenness this morning. Lord, you are your own energy and you choose to be active here. Lord, thank you that you are powerful, that you do act, that you knew the brokenness of this world intimately and you willingly stepped into it. In sending your son, you once again brought light into the world. Lord, help us see where the layers of our lives need to be peeled back, where we need to allow your light and your grace 
to shine, your grace to speak more deeply into the depths of our souls. Lord, we want to pause to reflect on you, a God who shines light into our darkness. Lord, thank you for letting yourself be known to us. Thank you for showing us true love and the beauty of who you are. We are not a people grasping at straws to understand how the world works because you have chosen to reveal it to us. You've revealed yourself to us that we might know how to live, how to rightfully honor you, how to orient our lives to follow your ways, that we might know something of what it is to live as the whole human you intended us to be. Let's pause to reflect on a God who chooses to reveal himself to us and give us knowledge of who he is. Lord, we pause to focus on your glory this morning. For all the people or things who hold weight in our world, all the things that we choose to give status to, Lord, all of these things fall short of your glory. None of them measure to your greatness. You are the God who is eternally existent, all-powerful, you are unchanging. You are self-sufficient. You are all-knowing. You are omnipresent. You are faithful. You are steadfast. You are full of wisdom. Lord, you epitomize glory. Let us pause to reflect on a God who is completely worthy of our worship. Reading from Paul's text again, 
For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, he's shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that we can gather this morning to worship you and proclaim the goodness of your gospel to our city and to ourselves. We love you, Lord. Amen. And with that, I'd like to invite Becky forward to read scripture this morning. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's word. So we're in Mark 9, 2 through 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Becky. Our printer broke this morning, so here we are. We're going to go no notes, and we're just going to try to lean in, and it's kind of like, well, if you don't know what you're going to say anyway by the time it's Sunday morning, you probably should find another job. So we're going to do our very best with this passage, Mark chapter 9. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there. This is the last week of what's called Epiphany, where the church hones in on understanding, leaning into specific passages where the divinity of Jesus, the divine nature of Jesus is made manifest. That's Epiphany. Epiphania means to make manifest. And so we've looked at several passages where the divinity of Jesus comes through and everybody stops and goes, actually, nobody could do that except God alone. Like turning water into wine or when he drives out demons or the way he teaches with authority. Um, and so, or when he cures, like last week, we were looking at where he cured a man with leprosy. We're looking into passages that highlight the divinity of Jesus and the church always ends the epiphany season on what's called Transfiguration Sunday. So today, that's what we're looking at is the transfiguration. And as we get in, I just wanna stop really quickly for just a moment and um, center ourselves uh, in on this passage. So I love you, church. It's so good to be with you this morning, just seeing your faces and knowing so many of your stories and just uh, across the gamut. Some are in here right now that are really walking through some real grief. Some are walking through life just as bored, as bored to tears and have no feelings this morning. And some of you are like, Right high, and life is just amazing. And um, wherever you find yourself this morning, please know that God is present to you here and now, and He loves you. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come to you in the mighty and the glorious name of Jesus, our Lord. 
Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring the prophets and the apostles to write your words and preserving your word for us down through the ages. Jesus, I ask that you would walk to each person. Come and find us in our seats this morning. Come find this pastor here on a stage. Um, Find us where we are and speak with us. We revere you. We've gathered only in your name. Transfigure our own minds. We pray this in your good name, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's do it. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, says this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Okay, pause. Six days after what? What happened? The preceding passage tells us that Jesus had told the disciples he'd asked them the most important question that he's ever asked, and it's the question he asks every one of his people throughout every day, who do you say that I am? Now remember, you don't answer that question just on a theology exam. Who do you say that I am is how you live your life. Your life is your theological doctrinal statement. Who we say Jesus is with how we treat one another, with how we pray, with how we fast, with how we repent, with how we change, with how we tell the truth, with how we live, we're according to our sex and sexuality and all the ways in which we walk out our Christian faith. That is what we're constantly doing is answering the question, who we say Jesus is. That's what a Christian life is. Who do you say that I am? Peter responded and got it right. He didn't always get it right. In fact, he got it wrong in the Mark chapter 9, the very next passage. But Peter got it right on that day. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. I am. Good. My father revealed that to you. Now, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be scourged, tortured, crucified. I'm going to be buried and then I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. And Peter begins to rebuke Jesus and go, yeah, that, see, that's the part of the story where you, that's not going to happen because you're the Messiah. And I just said you're the son of God and there's no way you end up on a Roman cross. That's, that's ridiculous. Jesus then says, get behind me, Satan, and rebukes Peter. And the gospel of Mark begins to take this turn right here where the heavy Nature of what it is to become a disciple of Jesus begins to really emerge onto the scene. In the first seven and a half chapters or so, Jesus is displaying his glory in all kinds of ways. And everyone's impressed with his, what we call Christology, this high Christology of Jesus, walking on the water, driving out demons, all the rest. And then suddenly it takes this dark turn of like, okay, I've proven to you who I am. Now this is what that's gonna look like for you. And it's gonna be very difficult to follow me. So, Peter was rebuked. Six days later, Jesus takes Peter and James and John. So within the week, up a mountain. Peter, James, and John are Jesus' three closest disciples. They're his closest friends, the inner friends, the inner three. And they're mentioned on three different occasions of getting kind of a front row seat to some things that Jesus did that no one else could see. The first instance is in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He brings his three best friends in and says, hey, guys, I'm going to show you something unreal. I'm going to raise this little girl from the dead. And he does. 
He's, at this point in their life, they're thinking our rabbi, our friend, suddenly just raised the dead. Then there's this passage in the transfiguration. And then the final passage where the inner three are mentioned is when he asked them to come pray for me in the Garden of Gethsemane. And like good friends, they fall asleep on him. And he wakes them up, dies for their sin, rises from the grave, and reinstates them and never brings it up again. All right, because that's the best friend in the whole wide world. All right, so here we go. So he takes the three up a high mountain. Um, the, as they're walking up the mountain, now scholars go back and forth. What mountain is it? it Tabor, Hebron, if you look in your maps in the back. It's probably Mount Hebron. It's, it's, it's roughly 9,000 feet in the air. Tabor is not a very big mountain. He goes up a high mountain. And these three Jewish disciples would have known going up a mountain, something's about to happen here because all the big stories in the Bible happen in the mountains. Theologian Robert Gundry says that mountains are the suburbs of heaven, <laughs> which is just fantastic. For those of us who live in the city, we're like, huh, yeah, right on, okay, yeah, the suburbs. What, what goes on in the suburbs? Apparently, in God's economy, a lot. <laughs> mountains are the suburbs of heaven. In Genesis uh, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, Father Abraham goes up the mountain with Isaac. Uh, in Exodus, we see uh, Exodus chapter 20, Moses goes up the Mount, Mount Sinai. Uh, Elijah in 2 Kings, he goes up the mountain and meets with God. There's a lot of places where things happen on mountains. So they're going up a high mountain with Jesus. And they're by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. He was transfigured. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, she wrote a book on um, Epiphany, and she's an Episcopal priest, a theologian that I've enjoyed over the last few years. Um, this is what she uh, how she describes this, this scene. Many attempts to explain the glory of God have been grounded in the idea of uncreated light. She's right about this is awesome. This, is, this important concept about God's being can help us understand the biblical epiphanies. A vital text is Genesis 1-3. God is the sole giver of light, which appears at his mere word of command. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Just like that. God spoke light into existence. This is not the original light of his very self, however. This is important. It is second-order light that humankind is enabled to see. The light that belongs to God's self is uncreated, because it precedes creation. You'll get this on the way home. The glory of God is not God in himself. The glory of God is not God in himself. So just pause and dip your toe in systematic theology for a moment. The glory of God is simply the Bible's way of trying to sum up all of the grandeur and the perfections of God that are stated 
about him and that he's revealed, that's what the Bible says. That's the, the glory of God. It's the sum total of all of his perfections. So the glory of God is not God. The glory of God is what emanates from God. Okay. Human beings in our present sinful, limited condition are not able to see God directly. God's glory is the radiance emanating from him. The light that belongs to him has to be mediated to us. That's why even in the least distance descriptions of the divine kabod, that means glory, in the Old Testament, it is still an appearance, one step removed from its essence. It is the appearance of the glory that is shown on Mount Sinai rather than the glory itself. Likewise, when Moses asked to see God's glory, he's only able to see God's back. The sight of God's face is forbidden. The effect of such passages serves as a warning to mere creatures that God's essence is not accessible, but it must be mediated so that human beings can receive it. So what Fleming is getting at and what theologians have tried to grasp at throughout the millennia on this passage is that there's capital L, light. God is light. And then there's created light, lowercase l, light. What we enjoy right now is lowercase l, light. And in this moment, the light of God, the immaterial soul of Jesus took on physical form for a moment in front of the disciples. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, it's it's not that he lifted up the whole veil and showed all of the glory, but he did lift up the corner for just a moment in front of the disciples just to begin to grasp. Jesus is the glory of God. It's unbelievable. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became whiter than anything that a launderer could ever create or bleach. Matthew says that his face became radiant. He was flashing like lightning. Jesus was transfigured before them. Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel both emphasize the fear that came over the disciples when they saw this. I mean, remember, Jesus was a Jewish man walking around with them for years, and then suddenly... He doesn't look like anything they've ever seen before, something none of us have ever seen before. <laughs> this is the epiphany. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. <laughs> These guys have been dead for hundreds of years. Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. That's Mark's way of putting Jesus in a superior position, by the way. They have a, uh, they're getting a few minutes with Jesus. Jesus isn't getting a few minutes with Moses. They're getting a few minutes with Jesus. And so people will point out sometimes that this represents the law and the prophets. 
You've got Moses representing the law. You've got Elijah representing the prophets. They're there. And they're meeting with Jesus. We don't have any idea what they're talking about. Apparently, the disciples didn't find that relevant. (laughs) Things that you and I might want to know, they didn't preserve for us. But they're speaking with Jesus. Because Jesus is the hero and Jesus is the center of all that Scripture has to reveal. There are lots of heroes in the Bible. There's lots of stories. But everything is always centering around Jesus. Always. The hero is not St. Paul, St. Peter, any of these people. The hero remains Jesus. Okay. And Peter speaks up. Here we go. Peter said... To Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. I just love that, that he just starts talking. It's like, I'm so glad I'm here for this. (laughs) It couldn't come across more dull. Uh, It's good that we're here. Yeah, you could, that's one way to say it. It's good that we're here. But then he begins to speak and he says, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say. You ever found yourself there? Yeah. Now, some people will say, oh, well, it seems like Peter wants to kind of capture this moment forever. I'm like, let's let's not move on from here. This is a good spot. Um, But it's probably not just that. These are faithful Jewish men that understand the story of God. They've been walking with Jesus. When they say they want to start building a tabernacle, these tents, they have an understanding that God dwelt with his people in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, with Moses, and so on, right? And so they're going, clearly Jesus is uniquely the son of God. God is in front of us. Maybe God needs us to build something for him, and and God's going to do a, a new kind of exodus experience. Now, we're, it's good that we're here. We can, get, we can build tabernacles and like I guess this is what we're doing now things are changing right now Uh, scholar James Edwards can we pull him up Mark thank you it says what Peter must come to understand however is that God is providing his own tabernacle in which to dwell before Peter's very eyes God's dwelling with humanity is present For Jesus is the new tabernacle of God dwelling with humanity. Peter cannot establish Jesus. Rather, it is Jesus who establishes Peter by his call to discipleship and fellowship to be with him. Now, you see this? This is so big because Jesus doesn't give Peter a reply. He just doesn't answer him. Peter doesn't establish Jesus. Jesus establishes Peter. I was reading this week that there are more, the the current trend right now, um, there are more people who have left the church in the last 20 years uh, than all the people in the first great awakening, second great awakening, and all of Billy Graham's crusades combined who converted to follow Jesus, more people have left the church in the last 20 years. And some shrink back and go, 
Oh, no. I mean, within like our children's generation, they will encounter more de-churched people than unchurched people currently exist. Does that make sense? More people are leaving. It's the first time in American history since in the last, whatever, 80 years that the Gallup polls have been running surrounding like religious study. And some shrink back and go, the church is dying. (laughs) Which, no it's not. Are you insane? This is Jesus right here we're talking about. Peter doesn't establish Jesus. The church doesn't establish Jesus. Worship leaders don't establish Jesus. Pastors don't establish Jesus. Authors don't establish Jesus. Faithful tithers don't establish Jesus. We don't establish Jesus and prop Jesus up. The king precedes the kingdom. Like there's, Jesus isn't pacing heaven going, oh, I just look at the church in North America and I'm so concerned. What am I ever going to do? He's the head of the church. He's resurrected from the dead. He's not worried about a single thing. And in fact, for so many who have decided to exit the church, they've exited the church for good reasons. Good reasons. When they see the the hypocrisy, theft, immorality, and so on, where a gospel is proclaimed but not practiced, where someone talks about forgiveness but doesn't pursue it, and they finally go, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. I don't know what to do with all this, but I'm done. Every once in a while, it makes sense why people walk away. I get it. I really, really get it. If that's you this morning, I'd encourage you, however, to challenge the notion that I can have Jesus but not his people because Jesus doesn't talk that way ever. Every time in the New Testament, when someone comes to faith, it's always come to faith in Jesus and here's his people. Because Jesus is a faithful groom, he's always going to introduce you to his bride. That's just how it is. But it makes sense why some are exiting. But let me tell you, Jesus isn't worried, and you shouldn't be either. This is an opportunity more now than ever to just be so crystal clear about who we are and why we live our lives the way we do regardless of what culture does out there and what church culture can do in here. It's an opportunity for the church to stand boldly and go, I'm not going to move. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again and I'm gonna live my life for his glory and I'm gonna deal with his people. All right, so, you're like, no, you man, all right, whatever. So Peter doesn't establish Jesus. Jesus establishes Peter. Okay. And a cloud overshadowed them. This is just like in Exodus when God comes down and meets with Moses. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud God God only speaks audibly twice. If anybody tells you God speaks audibly, they're lying. It's a lie. It's blasphemy. God spoke audibly to his only begotten son on two occasions. At his baptism, and he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Now a voice comes out of the cloud, and he doesn't speak directly to Jesus He speaks to the apostles around Jesus. This is my beloved son. 
hear him or listen to him. So Peter talks about this in 2 Peter later. He's like, we were there on the holy mountain and the voice came out and it spoke to us and I've been shaking ever since, basically. Like, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. I'm not talking to Moses. I'm not talking to Elijah. I'm not talking about some philosophy prof down the street. Listen to him. Don't argue with him. Don't question him. And again, this is not fundamentalism. This is the son of God. Listen to him. Orient your life around him. Slow down enough so that you can actually hear him. Listen to him. And here's what I think many of us struggle with is that if we do slow down long enough, we get in his presence and the moment we know he's there, we think we know what he's going to say and so we fill in the blank and we leave before he says anything. So we show up with this agenda that we want him to bless we sit in prayer for like one minute. We begin to get still and sense the nearness and go, got my answer, I'm out of here. And it's like, hold on, hold on. He might actually have another vision for your whole life. <laughs> listen to him. It's going to take some time to listen to Jesus. In fact, it takes your lifetime to listen to him. There's a lot of voices competing for your attention. A lot. There's a lot of money out there to be made. But you can't serve God and money, according to Jesus. There's a lot of things you can do with your life. There's a lot of experiences you can have. There's a lot of things. There's a, there's a lot to do in this world. But your soul was made for one. Listen to him. Here's what I found in the 20... I don't know, seven years of knowing Jesus now, I've found that when I do listen to him, my soul flourishes. I've found that when I don't listen to him, my soul withers. Your soul was made by him and for him. And he loved you and gave himself for you. And he gives himself to you again. Listen to him. About what? About everything. Literally everything. Well, what about the parts that I don't like? Especially those parts. And suddenly, <laughs> looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. The cloud lifted. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus only. I don't, I, it, this is one of those verses that's just beyond commentary, so I'll just keep moving on because there's really nothing. What else do you say? The glory of God came down. Jesus is flashing. The law and the prophets are gone. You should get on your knees and Worship this Jesus. That's, that's, that's the comment. Okay, now. Um, 
and they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Are you kidding? (laughs) Don't tell anybody what you saw up here. Some of us would not be very good at keeping this secret. None of us would. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the son, you've seen the Son of Man raised from the dead. So Jesus immediately starts mentioning his death and his resurrection. Don't tell anybody about this moment until after you see me up from the dead. Notice that when Jesus is raised from the dead, by the way, the Father doesn't speak from heaven. Wouldn't that be like the crescendo moment for the Father to speak? He didn't have to. He didn't have to. Christ was raised from the dead. Everything has been said. Okay. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this might mean. That he might be raised from the dead. Okay. Um, What does that have to do, this scene have to do with your actual everyday life? From work to relationships to finances to things you're struggling with in your own personal life, some it's a marriage thing or raising children or whatever. What does all this have to do with my like actual life? That's an amazing moment for Moses, Elijah, Jesus, the apostles. They're all there. That's amazing. Yes, uh, awesome. I, I, I believe you. How does that actually change me today, though? Does that speak to us in any other way? Yeah. There's actually instructions. This word, transfigured, shows up in another place in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transfigured by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's see what Augustine had to say. What the Son is to the eyes of the flesh, that is the Lord to the eyes of the heart. Okay, so how... How does the transfiguration of Jesus have anything to do with your everyday life? Your whole Christian life is a life of your mind. The mind. The Bible has so much to say about your mind undergoing a daily transfiguration. You see, the Christian life is not going up the mountain with Jesus. It's about going down. It's about going down. That's why they they go down the mountain. It stays down here. So how do I undergo daily transfiguration? You wake up before anybody else in your house or apartment or condo or wherever you're living. Wakes up and you go down. You go down onto your knees. You go down into your own story. You go down into the word of God. You go down before your creator. You go down before your longings. You go down before your experiences. You go down before your unmet expectations. You go down with all of your sin and your whole self present before God. At five o'clock in the morning, you get on your knees with 
sleep in your eyes and you say, God, transfigure my mind. Make me new. There are so many things competing for me and I struggle to be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's not out there. It's written all over me in here. Change my mind. The Christian life is a battleground of your mind. Listen, some of you are so miserable right now because you've just taken all the guards and protectors off your mind. It's like you just leave the front door wide open with no locks on it and allow anything to come in. And the Christian call on your life, listen, this will save your soul. I'm telling you, the call of the Christian life is to take your mind so seriously. The Christian call is not wake up and the first thing you do is grab that stupid phone and go fill her up, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, CNN, text messages from family or friends or whoever. Just fill it up. Whatever you got for me, whatever you got for me, North America, whatever you got for me, capitalism, whatever you got for me, consumerism, whatever you got for me, lust and greed and pride and filth and fill it up. That's not the call of the Christian at all. The call of the Christian mind, according to Colossians 1, is to set your mind on the preeminence of Jesus. Colossians 3 says to set your mind on things above. Where? Where Christ is seated. For the mindset of the things of the flesh brings death, but the mindset on the life of the Spirit is life and peace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul instructs the church to take every thought captive that comes into your mind. Take your thoughts captive because your mind is what creates worlds for you to live in. Take every single thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. Thoughts about relationships. Thoughts about sex. Thoughts about gender. Thoughts about your identity. Take your thoughts captive. Take those violent thoughts captive. Take those racist thoughts captive. Take those unkind thoughts captive. Take those unforgiving thoughts captive. Take that thought about buying that house, moving to that state, buying that car, getting more stuff, whatever that is. Take your thoughts captive and make them obedient. Make your mind obey Jesus. And that's a tall order for people in 2024 in a post-truth Seattle Make your thoughts obedient to who? The one who is raised from the dead, who said all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He is Lord. So if Jesus is Lord, then my mind is called to conform to him no matter what Seattle, Washington has to say. Take your thoughts captive. That's language that comes right out of the imperial guard in Rome. If someone's trespassing on the emperor's quarters, the guard was to go and Take that person, place them under arrest, put a spear up under the chin of the trespasser and walk them all the way to the emperor backwards with a spear under their throat. And you walk them right up to Augustus and say, found this guy on your property. What would you like me to do with him? That's the language Paul uses for your mind. 
You take every single thought captive and you make it obedient to Jesus. Listen, people that end up, people that end up in affairs don't end up there just by happenstance. You don't just wake up in bed with somebody and go, how'd I get here? By 10,000 terrible decisions in a row. And it's not funny. People end up in overwhelming amounts of debt where they're crippled and shackled and they can't move through life any longer. I wish I would have taken some thoughts captive. People end up without friends because they don't take their thoughts captive. People end up in places that are dark. But if you make your thoughts obedient to Jesus, you'll have a life of peace. Your mind is precious to God. A transfigured mind thinks about Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, encouraging one another day after day while it's still called today. That's what a transfigured mind does. It finds a way to encourage somebody. And a transfigured mind is a repentant mind. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and when Jesus appeared on the scene, he began preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. A transfigured mind is a mind that seeks reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21. A transfigured mind is a generous mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Like a transfigured mind is a mind that moves through this world ever so intentionally. We are not sponges that just soak up everything in media and culture and school and what everybody has to tell us and what our friends say and just soak all that up. No, we take every thought captive and we undergo a transfiguration because you have been given the mind of Christ because Christ is raised from the dead. You undergo transfiguration through hours of stillness and prayer. You undergo transfiguration by walking out your faith and community and allow your friends to speak into your life and speak into decisions and into the ways you're thinking. You undergo a transfigured mind by surrendering to the written word of God. You undergo a transfiguration of mind by bowing on your knees morning by morning and evening by evening, hailing Jesus as king of kings. That's how your mind will be transfigured in the here and now. And the wonderful news that all of this, it's a lot of work, i.e. discipleship, the root word is uh, discipline. It's a lot of work. In the end, when Christ returns, and not the corner of the veil is lifted, but the whole veil is lifted, when Christ returns and you put on immortality and your corrupt flesh becomes incorruptible, you will no longer be tempted with the flesh and your mind will only be fixed on him forever. And that's fantastic news. Okay. Because Seattle is busy, and because we don't ever have time to deal with our own minds and our own souls, I thought I would end today by giving you just a moment just to be. So I just finished reading a book uh, by Parker Palmer, And when it comes time to deal with your soul, I found this to be so helpful. The soul is like a wild animal. 
tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we're willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature we're waiting for may well emerge. And out of the corner of an eye, we'll catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. When it comes time to deal with your actual soul, in a way, it's like hunting. And for those that know what it's like to sit in a tree stand for hours and hours on end, you wait and you wait and you wait. If you're going to undergo a transfiguration of your mind, you're going to have to start taking some time to sit really still and allow your soul to come forward. And it's there that you invite Jesus in and go, okay, I'm with my real self. I feel the real longings, the real me. Jesus, Savior of my soul, transform me that I might test and know what is good and right and acceptable in your sight. So let's take a moment and just be still with God, and then we'll take communion together. Thank you for listening.